you to stand one more time as we read God's word, and we will be reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. This is Peter writing to a whole host of Christians scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, modern-day Turkey, for those of you that uh, would like to know where that's at. And so here's Peter wrapping up the second letter with these words, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to the final verses of 2 Peter, I'd like to stress to you that what he's doing is he's saying goodbye. Peter is saying goodbye to some very dear friends. This, the letter of 2 Peter has been focused on reminders Peter reminds and restates truths that they were already very much aware of, and yet he knows that they needed to hear them again. And they need to hear these truths again because it is the only way by which believers will stay focused on their walk with Jesus Christ, by being reminded of the truths. Let me remind you that as Peter writes these things, He's very much aware that his time on earth is short. These are, in his mind, the very last words he will ever get to speak to these people or write to these people. Peter was confident that his time was short. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he had already told them, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. I, I love the language of Peter. He's just a common fisherman. Most of us, if we thought our time was going to be uh, done, we'd just say, I'm, I'm about to go to see the Lord. But Peter says, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. It's going to happen at any moment. Knowing that his time was short, Peter takes the opportunity to encourage these believers to speak to them one last time of those things that he believes are of first importance. And I, I find that there's a lesson for us in this. That Peter, when he recognizes that he's on the precipice of eternity, is not wrapped up with the temporal things. He's not concerned about some of these things that we find ourselves so often filling our conversations with. We so often focus on things that are so trivial when compared to an eternal scale. 
and there is certainly a place for those things. But I suspect that not one of us in this room is in danger of having spoken of eternity too much this week. Would that be a fair statement? Most likely we've been in danger of speaking way too much on temporal things this week. Take the lesson from Peter. You do not know how long your days are on this earth. And while we may be blessed with many of them, every one of them should be used to the glory of God, to proclaim the greatness of your God. We do well to intentionally chew on God's word and, and then to specifically intentionally talk to one another about the glories of God. Well, Peter's heart was to remind believers of truths, again, they'd already heard and, and already knew, and he did it not just for them. He tells us in this letter that he does it for himself. The preacher does this for himself so that he would have confidence, he said, that when he left this earth, he would know that they would continue on in their walk with Christ. He wanted them to know and know again truths, to be seeing them living out the truths so that when he is gone, it wouldn't be, oh, good, Peter's gone. We can live like devils. It would be that we will now live even all the more for Jesus Christ. You see, for Peter, and it ought to be so for us, it is never enough to know the truth. It is never enough to remember the truth. Such knowledge for Peter must be coupled with action. What you say you believe must impact how you behave. And we began looking at that even last week in the title of this little series, How Then Shall We Live? The text that I read to you covers the span of just five verses, and yet they reflect, beloved, the sum and substance of everything Peter has been saying throughout this letter. And by the way, it reflects the very gospel itself. A careful reading of these verses reveals to us the deep affection of Peter for these people. It reveals a pastor's heart, this pastoral heart. We get a sense that he's really feeling what he's saying to these people. Peter is saying goodbye to these beloved ones of God. And it made me think, do you know how hard it is to say goodbye? Do you know what that's like? I know many of you do. I remember when my kids, who are not kids anymore, got married and left the house. A few days after they left the house for the final time, as directed now from under my care, all I could tell them in those days leading up is how much what? How much I love them. How much I love them. How much that I would miss them. The day that they left, I said the same things to them. As happy as weddings are, the moments were filled with both tears of joy, but also tears of loss, even though the loss is a good loss, even though the loss is what God has ordained, even in the best of losses, there can be heartache when you say goodbye. So all I could tell them is that I love them. I remember walking into my son's room after he got married, and he wasn't there anymore guy that I used to just go and talk to, he's not there to talk to. I remember walking into my daughter's room after she got married, and she gutted the room, took about everything, 
She left a couple of things in the closet. Most things that she left, uh, the, the, the most numerous thing that she left were her Chick-fil-A uniforms. I finally got rid of those. There is one other thing that she left in the closet. It's now my office, and so every time I go into this closet, uh, I, I see this one particular item, and I, I have not parted with it. Um, I did bring it, though, okay? And uh, I, I don't know, I don't usually use object lessons, but she left this little parasol that we got for her at Silver Dollar City. And it's got her name on it and some cats and everything. And um, Elizabeth, I'm still going to keep this in my closet. I'm sorry, you can't, it's, it's common law. It's been mine for seven years, okay? But there are times when I walk into the closet and I just, I, I had to say goodbye to my little girl. She's not my little girl anymore. She's my daughter who's an adult and has a wonderful husband and a family. But think about when you say those goodbyes. This is what Peter is doing. He's saying goodbye to some beloved friends. He realizes this is probably the last time he'll ever speak to them. And so he increases his verbal affection the closer you get to the end of the book. How do we know that? Because if you look carefully at these final five verses, he says, beloved, beloved, beloved. They are loved by God, and therefore, for Peter, they have to be loved by him. If you are a born-again believer, you must love the brethren. And when you know any of them, It shouldn't be, oh, good, I'm glad they're gone. I know that, I know Peter understood he would see these people again, but from the temporal perspective, this would be it. Let me give you a few observations of these final five verses before we look in depth at them. Peter is being deliberate in the structure of these words. I would like you to note that with me. Look at verse 14 and verse 17, and note what word begins there. He uses the word therefore in verse 14 and 17. It is a word that draws a conclusion. He is making a summary of all that he has previously written. I would also have you see that Peter uses these conclusions ultimately as a summary for everything that he has written in the entire letter. In verses 14 through 16, we find Peter explaining how believers are to live in light of the return of Christ, which is what chapter 3 has been about. So verses 14 through 16 speak of the, the return of Christ and this understanding of his long delay. In verse 17, you'll note there that Peter summarizes what he has written ultimately in what chapter? Chapter 2, and following the heir of unprincipled men, the false teachers. And in verse 18, when he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he's taking them back to what chapter? Chapter 1, and that list of qualities that if you're growing and increasing in these things, you're neither useless nor unfruitful in God's kingdom, and you're being diligent to make certain of God's choosing and calling of you. Yet another important thing to note in these final verses is that Peter gives them four very specific 
commands, four very specific commands. They're highlighted in yellow for you. Note them. He, to- he commands them, be diligent to be found by Christ in peace, spotless and blameless. Command number one. Second command, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Command number three, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by false teachers. And the last command, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What are these? These are Peter's expectations. If you are beloved, this is the expectation. These are Peter's exhortations on how Peter, uh, believers are to live their lives until Christ returns. And again, I want to point out there's a link then between what we say we believe and our behavior. When our behavior does not match what we say we believe, you need to understand that's a warning for you that something is not in sync in your relationship with Christ. Our creed must affect our conduct. We're going to take these final verses uh, ultimately in two parts, verses 14 through 16, and those two commands, although we're only going to look at the first one, uh, and then we're going to see how they relate back to this return of Christ, and then we'll move on to verses 17 and 18 in the weeks to come and consider how they speak to us of chapters 1 and 2 respectively. One last observation, one of Peter's reoccurring themes in this letter has been that of his of God's promises. If you ever if you ever find yourself discouraged, this is what I challenge you to do. Go and look up the promises of God in scripture. Go look up what God has promised to do for you and for your loved ones. It's all been a book of promises. Back in chapter 2 verses 1 uh, ch- chapter 2 verse w- I'll get this. Second Peter 1 verse 4, Peter began reminding his readers this. He said, God has granted to us his precious and magnificent, what? Promises, so that by those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, that is, you may be saved, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, that is, sanctified. How are you saved and how are you sanctified? We don't normally use it in this language, but Peter says you're saved by the promise of God. And you're sanctified by the promise of God. God promises those things to those who believe. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we come back to the promises of the Lord, specifically the promise of the Lord's coming. And we noted back in verses 11 and 12 the holiness of his promise last week, that believing in the promise of God leads to the holy conduct and godliness of his people as well as to the hope of his promise in verse 13, that believers are not looking at the return of Christ as a time of personal doom, as is the case for those who do not believe. But when we speak of the return of Christ, we look at it as a time of wonder and delight because it will be where we experience what? The new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. That becomes our reality. Well, this morning we're going to look then and continue this theme of promise, and we're going to look then at this first promise that I've entitled The Purity of His Promise. The Purity of His Promise. Read with me again verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless, and blameless. 
Again, Peter begins by recalling, uh, calling attention to, hey, I need you to think of everything we've just talked about. I need you to think about the, the, the doom that is coming upon those who are ungodly, who have rejected Jesus Christ. I need you to think about the promise of, of uh, the new heavens and the new earth for those who have believed. But that therefore is taking us back to that. But then Peter does something that I, I, I think is actually shocking, and it may not seem shocking to us because we are used to it. But before calling them to action, Peter gives them what we're going to entitle the moniker of purity, the moniker of, pu of purity. A moniker is a nickname, and what is the nickname that he gives to these believers? And you've heard it many times. What is it? They're beloved. They are the beloved. This is an alias by which people are known. It's not their actual name or title, but he uses this moniker to, in, to speak of, in a very affectionate way, these people. Now, I have a moniker, a special one, for my wife. Since before she and I were married, over 34 years ago, I began to refer to her when I'd take her out on a special date or a special occasion. She would get a card or something that said, my favorite lady. And even now, every anniversary or birthday, I refer to her as my favorite lady. I reserve that moniker for special occasions, something that I give to her at those special times. What I do not do is use it so often that it becomes meaningless, just to use a, a phrase so often that it, it, it strips it of, of any deep affection. And that's what she gains from it, at least that's what I hope she gains from it, that she knows my deep love and affection for her because she alone is my favorite lady. Sorry, Elizabeth. She's, she says she left. Elizabeth's gone. Okay. In our text, Peter's pastoral heart and deep affection for believers is seen readily in this text as two times in five verses he refers to them with his term of affection, his moniker, and it is beloved. Beloved, like my term, my favorite lady, this is Peter's special term for his readers, and I want to remind you of what it means to be beloved. This is not a Hallmark card. This is not Peter trying to fill in, you know, I've got to have 1,400 words here, so I'm going to just use the word beloved. How many of you remember high school days when you had to write a 1,500-page uh, 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 report or 1,500-page? Uh, that's what I feel like. 1,500-word report, and so you're just like, you're repeating words, and you say, and they were very, very, very unhappy or whatever, okay? That's not what Peter's doing. Some of you are laughing because you did it. <laughs> Peter is intentional. He has a limited space on a papyrus, and yet he's used this term several times and is using it twice at the end. So what does it mean to be beloved in the eyes of Peter? Well, first, the term beloved, let me just give you a real simple definition. It means most dearly loved ones. Okay, he's using it in a plural, so it's the most dearly loved ones. Do you remember the very first time Peter uses the word beloved in the book of 2 Peter? 
He uses it back in chapter two, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. If you want to just turn over, you can see there. And I want you to note this, and this is why this is shocking. Peter uses the term the very first time with reference to whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it with regard to what he himself heard God the Father speak from heaven concerning his own son. Peter heard with his ears God the Father call God the Son, what? Beloved, most dearly loved one. It is a description of God's deepest affection and love for the Son. It would reflect the Son's deepest love and affection for the Father. It reflects an eternal love, a love that is without beginning and without end. It is a love that has never once, ever once experienced disharmony. Think about that one. As we strive husbands to love our wives and our wives strive to love the husbands, not once is there disharmony. It is an infinite love. It is an utterly holy love. It's unlike any love that we can fully get our heads around. God the Father applies this term to God the Son, my beloved Son. These are the words the disciples Peter, James, and John heard on the Mount of Transfiguration from heaven itself to bear the moniker, the title, beloved. In that context, there is nothing more sacred. There is no better word. There's no better term by which to be known. God beloves the Son. But beginning in chapter 3 of this letter, Peter does something unusual and something we might really miss, and therefore we need to go back and consider it. It's absolutely extraordinary. He takes that term that he himself heard from heaven with reference to the Holy Son of God, and he uses it five times now in chapter 3, four of which are those Uh, to those who remember what he has written to them in his first and second letters. If you have heard the things that I've written to you, Peter says, in my first and second letter, I want you to know you are beloved. What would ring in in their reader's ears? You just called us by the very same term that God the Father speaks of God the Son. He uses this word beloved to speak of those who love God's word as spoken to them beforehand by the holy prophets as well as the commandment of the Lord as spoken by the apostles there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. He uses the term beloved again in in chapter 3 verse 8 to remind the believers of God's relationship to time and that we might regard uh, God as what we might regard God as being slow is actually God uh, uh, keeping his promise he's being patient so that we might be saved he uses it again now here in verse 14 to speak of those who are eager for the return of christ and in verse 15 he uses it in a different way with associating it with paul he calls paul our what our beloved brother what did he just do he just equated paul with all the common believers why isn't that a diminishing of paul 
No, because we're all what? Brothers and sisters in Christ, all equally beloved by God. We're all equal. And finally, he uses it in verse 17 to speak of those who realize there will be false teachers, and so they must be on guard so as not to fall prey to their error. We may not think much of this profuse use of the word beloved, but it would be akin to me having a conversation with my wife and constantly using what? My favorite lady, my favorite lady, my favorite lady. She might like to hear it the first one or two times, but if I keep using it over and over and over again, she's like, what's up? What's going on? It would certainly, though, if I did that, capture her attention, right? Well, Peter is trying to capture the attention of his readers. The beloved are those, again, who according to chapter 1, verse 1, who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no distinction among the redeemed. I do not stand up here as a preacher or a pastor or an elder any more redeemed than anyone, anyone else in this congregation. We are all saved equally. We are all saved by grace through faith in the person and by the righteousness of Christ. And so I ask you this question. Are you beloved? Is that a title, a moniker, by which you know belongs to you because you have faith in Christ? In a moment, we're going to see that the beloved are the ones from whom Peter expects something. And what is it that he expects? You think love doesn't expect anything. Well, actually it does. Love has expectations. And the expectation is that if you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. Peter says, if you are the beloved, you will pursue purity. We'll see that in just a moment. If you are God's beloved, then your life is to be characterized by this pursuit of purity, to be found, as we'll see, in peace, spotless, blameless. The beloved are those who, because of their standing with God, are eager to reflect that character of standing. They're eager to say, here it is, Christ in me, the hope of glory, and here's the beauty, here is the wonder, here is the purity of Christ before you. So I ask you again, does this moniker, beloved, belong to you by your faith in the person and work of Christ? Well, we move from the moniker of purity to a, a second item that we consider, the motivation for purity. The motivation for purity. Peter goes on to say, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things. Peter tells us that believers are those who are looking. Remember, we considered this word. It's the same word that was used last week in verses 11 through 13. Uh, it, it speaks of eagerly anticipating. He says, you are looking, you are eagerly anticipating. And then he uses this phrase, these things. What things? The totality of what we've just read in verses 11 through 13. Well, what did we just read there? Two things. The doom of unbelievers. Are you eagerly looking forward to that? Or the introduction to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're eagerly waiting the return of Christ, ultimately for the latter. It's just that the first thing that's going to happen 
is the destruction of the ungodly. The beloved are believing these things and believing that Christ is returning, believing that God, that Christ will judge a un, uh, the unbelieving world, believing that God or that that Christ is coming to usher in this new heavens and this new earth. That is to be your motivation for purity. Because if you're not living in purity, you're not reflecting Christ. It could well mean that you are not a beloved one at all but you're headed towards doom so there's a motivation I better make sure I'm on the right track here and then the idea of Christ is returning what will he be find find me doing when he returns will I be engaged in those things that he deems as holy and righteous so there's our motivation again what we believe is to have an impact on how we behave thinking back for a moment if you look at verse 7 of chapter 3 here, what is it that characterizes the present world? Peter says in verse 7, what characterizes this present world is ungodly men, unrighteousness, a resistance to walk in the will and the way of God. Such a world, according to verse 7, is being kept for what? Verse 7 says, for judgment and for destruction. The unrighteous will not inherit the earth. Do you see how imperative it is to make sure that you are not unrighteous? The unrighteous will not inherit the earth. Then in verse 13, Peter tells us again that the new heavens and the new earth will be a place in which the righteous, righteousness dwells. Since only righteousness will dwell in the new earth, then is it not imperative that believers or those who profess to be believers demonstrate that righteousness now? Essentially, verse 14 continues then with what we began looking at last week. How shall we live? What does it look like to live in light of the return of Christ? What does it look like if I'm a Christian? What are the expectations? What are the moral and ethical and practical implications of the return of Christ? We're guaranteed, verse 10, that the day of the Lord will come. And one aspect of this time where the Lord brings all things to their appointed end is that destruction of the present universe so tainted by sin. The heavens will pass away. The elements will be destroyed. And the earth will be burned up. And because of that, verse 11, if you'll note it, it says almost the same thing as what we're looking at now. It says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And now Peter's saying almost the same thing again. Why does he say it twice? You know why. Because it's easy for us to forget. And when we, we always say this, when an author says something one time in the Bible, it should be enough. But sometimes it takes the second time to hear it to say, wake up and make sure that this is so. And that's where Peter is going with this. By knowing Christ will return and knowing that the universe will be destroyed and knowing that there's this new heaven and this new earth coming, does that not motivate you to say, okay, I'm going to live a life that pleases the Lord? Last week we noted that Peter said such a belief in the return of Christ causes us this, to live this, these lives of holy conduct and godliness, these distinct separate lives from the wicked way of the world around us. We are to live in godliness, putting on the character and uh, putting on display the character of God to all those around us. 
uh, by the way, this was the way in which the Lord described uh, himself. Interestingly, this idea of um, uh, the, the character of God. Let me back up. To display the character of God, what does that mean? It means to demonstrate what? Love, grace, mercy, compassion, truth. You all with me on that? With that down, godliness is a manifestation of the character of God that we manifest mercy, grace, compassion, faithfulness, truth. Do you realize that the Lord himself described himself that way to Moses? And he described himself that way to Moses after a horrendous event called the golden calf. You remember the golden calf? People are waiting down at the bottom of the mountain trying to figure out, hey, what happened to Moses? Well, hey, we got to have a God, so let's throw all of our gold together. And, and uh, Aaron put it so distinctly, we just threw all of our gold into the fire and out popped this golden calf. And so we decided we're going we're gonna to worship it because, well, you weren't here anymore, Moses. And so we had to do something. And, uh, well, of course, Moses coming down from the mountain, and he's had the tablets. And on the tablets were the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. What does Moses do? I mean, these are brand new tablets. Nobody's ever seen them before except Moses. And he hurls them at what? Those, that golden calf. He goes back up on the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, this is the way the Lord reveals himself. To Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That phrase, if you are careful with it in your reading of the Old Testament, you will see that phrase echoed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. That self-description of God. That's the reflection of God. Peter comes and says, if you believe that Jesus is returning, you will reflect godliness. You will reflect the character of God. Your life should be showing to others around you compassion, grace, slowness of anger, abounding in mercies and loving kindness and truth. God's people are to reflect God's character. And now Peter's saying, if that's not the result, you're not rightly understanding the return of Christ. How's that for intense? It is to motivate us to the truths of the gospel. It is to motivate us to the active pursuit of this kind of purity. And that brings us then to the third aspect of this verse, this is the motivation. Christ is returning. Let's make sure we're doing it his way. And now we look at the method for purity. How do we get there? How do we reflect God's character? How do we reflect that holy conduct and, and godliness from verse 11? Well, Peter says it. Pretty simple, right? How do you do it? Be diligent. Be diligent to be found by him, by Christ. I was thinking about this for the longest time. I was enjoying thinking about this. 
Here in verse 14, we find Peter again saying very much the same thing that he said back in verse 11, only now he's using a little bit different terms because he, he's going to give this command. We're going to talk about it. Be diligent, be found by him. But now he uses the terms what? Found in him, found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Well, we'll talk about those in just a moment. But here is our first exhortation. Here's Peter's first command. Here's the thing that you get to walk home with. Here's what you need to pray about. Here's what you need to say, okay, God, this is in your word. This is what you've divinely brought to me this day. This is what I must be focused on. And what is it? What is this command? The method, the means by which believers can pursue purity. They must be diligent. Have you heard that word before in this study? Be diligent. The way it's written actually needs to be understood not as, as continually being diligent. Uh, there's that aspect of it. This is Peter's call to say, are you in or are you out? It is in an aorist tense, past tense command. It means this. You need to make your resolve now. You're either going to pursue purity or you're not. You need to resolve now, make an unwavering resolve to make maximum effort to be prompt and eager in the obtaining of this one thing. What is that one thing? Being found by Christ. To be diligent, to be found by Christ. Now, does that ring kind of weird to you to be found by him? Typically speaking, when we read a statement in the New Testament, we're used to the phraseology to be found in him. It's one of the New Testament and Paul's favorite descriptions of being saved, to be found in Christ, to be found in him. Believers are to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of their own, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. But Peter doesn't say to us to be found in him. He's not talking about first coming to salvation. He says be found by him. This speaks again not of our status of being saved. What is Peter's concern? I've told you how you are living your life. He's making the assumption, okay, you've told me you're saved. Now prove it. Demonstrate it by the way that you live. What will Christ find you doing when he returns? What is he, what, what, you're going to be found by him doing what? Crossword puzzles? Yeah, but they're all Bible verse crossword puzzles. In the words of 1 John 2.28, now little children abide in him, so that's salvifically, once you're saved, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We want to be found doing the things that Christ has asked us to do. You know, the greatest blessing I think could ever happen is if Christ returns on a Sunday morning. We'll be found by him doing what he's commanded, right? That's an easy one. In a moment, now Peter says that in that moment, when believers are face to face with Christ, you've been found by him. You're now before him. 
what will he find you doing? Now I'm going to come back to this and link it to the method of this application of eager diligence and effort that we need to consider, but hang on to that thought because before we do that, I want to speak about the manifestations of purity, the manifestations. The, the, the method is to be diligent. We're going to come back to that. I'm going to try to be more applicational in just a moment, but let's, what's the manifestations? What are we to be so diligent about to be found by him doing what? By find, by be found in him pursuing what? Peace spotless and blameless believers the beloved are those who are I, I i can't come up with enough words they're determined they're they're not just dogmatic but as steve lawson likes to say they're bulldogmatic they're resolved to do anything and everything they can to be found in that moment of christ's return to do all that Christ has called them to do, to, to put on display the manifestations of purity, what Peter refers to simply as in peace, spotless, and blameless. The first manifestation he speaks of here is peace. And again, we have some things that we think about when we talk about having peace with God. We're thinking very salvifically. While being at peace with God is clearly a reflection of being saved, of being justified. Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we therefore have what? Peace with God. He's not angry with us anymore. We're not at war with him. We understand that. Uh, we understand that because of the work of Christ on the cross, the wrath of God has been appeased. We are no longer his enemies. We are reconciled. We have the status of friends. We have the status of children. We have the status of what? Beloved but that's not what Peter's concerned about. He's concerned about what? Behavior. He's concerned about conduct. He says that the believer's life is to be characterized by peace. That when Jesus returns, you be found by him practicing what? Peace. What is peace? Peace is wholeness. It is rightness. It's being not only at, in harmony with God, but it also is being in harmony with those around you. We know that by faith in Christ, we are presently at peace with God. We know our sins are forgiven. We know we need not fear the coming judgment on the unbelieving. Why? Because Christ has cleansed us from all sin. Christ has washed us in his blood. Therefore, we have assurance that we will be found by him at his return in peace. But we are presently to demonstrate the reality of that status of being at peace with God even as we resolve now to make maximum effort to live in peace and harmony with one another, forgiving one another even as we have been forgiven by God, loving one another even as we've been so loved by God, serving one another even as, ready for this, God has served you. He came and died for you. He has served you. The greatest servant who has ever walked this earth has served you. 
And Peter presses this idea further. Since we have the promise of the return of Christ, he says, let us live lives of purity. Peter uses two more adjectives, spotless and blameless. And sometimes it is hard to truly grasp the depths of the statements that are made. Peter is calling believers here. He's calling you and me to live lives of such purity until the Lord returns that when he does, that we would be found having lived lives, ready, that are spotless and blameless. How many of you have already failed that test? It's like, what are you asking us to do, Peter? How on earth are we supposed to be found in him spotless and blameless when I already know about my own life? There are four of us working through a study on biblical eldership by Alexander Strzok. We are six lessons in, but I think I can speak for the other men that what has been painfully true in the opening lessons and what continues to be true as we press on into the study is the utter inadequacy of the task that we have to be elders. Who can live up to the absolute standards that have been set for elders and pastors and under shepherds of Christ. When you review the list, I encourage you to do this. Read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 5 and try to say who could do these things. Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? So which one of the men in this church can stand up and fulfill all those qualifications we all need to come to the end of ourselves we need to know our inadequacies I can't do this I can't be a pastor to this church in myself you can't be spotless and blameless by anything that you've done. So if you think you're safe because you haven't aspired to the office of elder, I just say, okay, I think he ratcheted up. You're spotless and blameless. Those are words which would easily correspond to some of the very titles that and expectations on elders, that you be above reproach men, uh, um, that they be respectable, just, all of those things. So what do we mean when, when Peter says, I need you to be spotless and blameless when Christ returns? Because he's not talking about being saved. What is he talking about? Your conduct. Your conduct. The word, or the idea of the word spotless speaks of the essence of Christian character. To be spotless speaks of the essence of Christian character. It means this, that if Christ is in us, then his spotlessness, his his holy character dwells in us. So far, so good? But that truth must be making its way from the inside out. You need to know for certain that the spotlessness of Christ is being manifested out, and others should be able to see that manifestation. The idea of the word blameless speaks of believers' reputations with others so spotlessness has the idea of, of what we know internally, and then the idea of being blameless speaks of, of the reputation that we have before others, that others actually see us exemplifying Christ. Obviously, a person may deceive others, 
We can appear blameless while our private lives are far from being spotless, but here the effort of each and every one who says they know and love Christ is to be both spotless and blameless, and he uses this term, I need you to make a resolve right now that this is your goal. This is your goal, to apply maximum effort to see that, that what we say we are in Christ lines up with what we do. Because one day when Christ returns, Peter instructing believers now, you must be found by Christ. You must be seen by Christ as what? Spotless and blameless. Not just salvifically, but in the very practical, everyday way you live your Christian life. And now the question is, how do we do this? Right? It's, you can all agree with me. This is, yeah, that's what it says. These are great terms. But we're, I, I hope you're like me and think, how is this supposed to get done? I, I don't know if I'm going to get out the door today without messing this one up. Let me pause here to say that the only reason anyone could ever be regarded as spotless and blameless both positionally and practically is because of who Christ is. Because of Christ himself, he is your spotless and blameless one. The very core of the gospel that we believe, that we take by faith what God has declared in his word, that all our own unrighteousness, everything we have done that's bad, everything we've yet to do, that's bad. He's taken all of that unrighteousness, our lack of spotlessness. He's taken all of our blame and he transferred it to Christ himself. He laid our sins upon himself and bore our sins in his body so that he might remove our spots and blame. At the same time, we believe we take by faith what God has declared in his word, that God also transfers all of his what? All of Christ's righteousness, all the good things about him, all that makes Christ right, and he's now put that spotlessness and blamelessness on us so that when God looks at us, what does he see? The spotlessness and blamelessness of Christ. The wonder of the gospel is that by faith, the sinner is made spotless and blameless. I, if you can't just try to ponder that for a little bit today and go, that's too wonderful for me. My mind cannot obtain it. That's the promise of God. But I want to tell you again, and I'm trying to drive this home. This is not just theoretical. I don't want you to just think, yeah, it's all wonderful. It's forensic. It's just, it's just out there. It's just true. Uh, but I'm going to live however I want. It's not meant to be theoretical. It's meant to be practical. That our sins have been forgiven by Christ. That we've been dressed in the righteousness of Christ in the eyes of God. Now he, he lo looks at us and he sees Christ. But let me tell you something about our God. He does not leave you. He does not want you to continue in sin. When Jesus met the woman who was caught in adultery. What were his final words to her? Go and sin no more. He's interested in a purity of life. It's very 
practical here. To know Jesus as Lord and Savior is to be filled with the Holy Spirit who begins a work of conforming us to what? The likeness of Christ, Romans 8.29. Or 8.29. And that work is real, and I want to tell you that work is measurable, and you ought to be measuring it. And others should be able to measure it in you as well. The work is demonstrable. And I ask, how do we know if we're striving then diligently? We made this, this resolve to be spotless and blameless. screen got ahead of me didn't it gave it away we use this so often but you need to hear it over and over again is your life filled with love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control because when the spirit of christ dwells in you he works in you And if he's working these things in you and through you, you know you've got the right resolve. If you are striving to see these things, you, yeah, sin rears its ugly head in our lives, doesn't it? We get disgusted with ourselves because we see where we've gone awry, but we should come right back to this, okay, Lord, that was me, that was my flesh, but now may your spirit work in me. I resolve not to live by the flesh. I resolve to live by your spirit. And this is what Peter is driving towards. His main concern, not about the positional standing of of believers before God. He wants the lives being lived in the quality of Christian character. And what does it look like? Well, it is the pursuit of a genuinely spotless and blameless life one that constantly has to say, I'm saved by grace through faith. I live by grace through faith. I fail, but I still have grace and I still have faith and I will do better. I will strive harder. That is my resolve to apply that maximum effort to see that who we say in Christ matches what we do. Look back with me, if you would, at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. We're to live this life of spotless, genuinely spotless, blameless lives, which depends upon the spotlessness and blamelessness of Christ, tries to manifest that in our lives. We're going to be found pursuing that in our lives. But I want you to note that Peter's used these words before in a little different form. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Note how Peter describes false teachers, those who do not to conform themselves to the teachings of God's word. He says, but these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Notice what it says here. They are what? Stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse among you. If you do not believe God's word, then you are stains, literally spots, and you are blemishes, literally you are blameful. 
It's the same word that's used in our text, only uh, in our text, there's a, it, it's kind of interesting, there's an A in front of it. So uh, when you put an A in front of a word, that prefix, it means no or without. So now believers are those are without stains and without blemishes, but those who do not believe are those with stains, with blemishes. They are full of spots, and they are to blame for their position. Beloved, we cannot live this way as spot stains and blemishes. We're to live as spotless and blameless, but we can't do it on our own. We can't do it in our own strength. We must look to Christ. We must pray continually. We must strive to see the spotlessness and blamelessness of Christ manifested in our own lives. That's the purity of the promise that we find in the return of Christ, that we be found in him this way. And all of this begs a question I want you to consider as we try to wrap this up. Since this is a command to, uh, to resolve to apply maximum effort in your pursuit of living a peaceful, spotless, blameless life, are you earnestly pursuing that life of purity? Are you seeking to live a life characterized by spotlessness and blamelessness? Do you see yourself internally resolved to be pure and externally resolved to be pure in every area of your life? We might wish that God would simply, simply hit us with a divine thunderbolt, right? Just, just do it, God. Impart us with a holy, practical spotlessness and blamelessness, and we don't have to do a thing, and that would be nice. But what does God demand? Your vigilance, your allegiance, your commitment your purity, and that brings us back to this method, point C, and the method. This idea that the believer is to be so engaged and so engrossed with the pursuit of holiness and purity and godliness that it's at the front and center of the mind of Peter. Let me tell you how much this has been in the heart and mind of Peter because we take this call to be diligent. Now make this resolve to apply that maximum effort. Now we take it back to chapter 1. What it, have you heard this a few times in this series? Now, for this very reason also, applying all what? Diligence. We've heard this. In your face, apply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Beloved, we are to live spotless and blameless lives when we walk in moral excellence, knowledge, and uh, Self-control, I think that's not supposed to be there. We live spotless and blameless lives when we walk in moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, brotherly kindness, and love. Does that describe you? If you say yes, amen, and I'm going to tell you what, excel still more. If that doesn't describe you, then you need to do some work with God. Say, God, change this. Like our 2 Peter 3.14 text, Peter speaks of applying all diligence to your faith. Make every effort to assure that these qualities of Christ-like character are being worked out in you. How do I do that? I fail. It's okay to fail. What's not okay is to stay failing. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you your sin. He gives you the remedy on the way out. But the idea here is if you truly believe something, it will demonstrate itself in your life. If we say 
we believe that Christ is going to return, then those things ought to be what we pursue and see manifested in our life. So you tell me you read God's word because you believe it. But I tell you that if you do not seek to apply it in how you live in light of what you've read, then you are not diligent. You're lazy. You sit under the preaching of God's word and you say you believe it, but do you pray for wisdom? God, I've heard the truth. Now help me apply it to my everyday life to be diligent in your faith, to be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless means you are intentionally surrounding yourself with all those things necessary to encourage your walk with Christ and to challenge others to walk with Christ. This idea of being resolved to apply maximum effort in your Christian walk is the again found in chapter 1 and verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his, his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you do what? If you're doing these things. Don't tell me you believe them, Peter says. I'll know you believe them when I see you what? Do them. So let me tell you that this is a call to purity. That the one who knows... He is called and chosen of God is the one who practices these things. Again, he says, Peter says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, since you know all of this to be true, let it result in peace, spotlessness, and blamelessness. Peter's not the only one that caught this idea. Let me close by having you look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 put that up on the screen for you isn't this the saying the same thing Peter calls us beloved what does John do see how great a love the father has bestowed upon us what is he just saying he just doesn't use the moniker but he's saying the same thing see how immensely wonderful a love the father has bestowed upon us that we sinners would be called the children of God and such we are for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him Beloved, there's the term, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared, uh, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he what? Appears. When he what? Returns. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Oh, praise the Lord. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. I'm just going to live how I want until the Lord returns now. Well, John didn't stop. He, like Peter, goes on and says, this is to be a motivation for something. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him. What hope is that? The return of Christ. What does it do? He purifies himself. To what standard? Just as Jesus is pure. The promise of the return of Christ, what John calls this hope, motivates us towards purity. If you look down just a couple more verses in 1 John, we see the same language of righteousness. And in verses 7 and 8, it says this, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Sounds a little bit like First Peter or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is what? The one who has is, uh, is diligent to be found in him, found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Isn't the same thing? The one who practices righteousness is righteous. That's how you know. Just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from 
the beginning. So what characterizes your life? And then notice what he says. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And Peter tells us it's coming. Full bore. In 2 Peter 3.14, Peter's exhorting believers to make sure their lives are reflections of the righteousness of Christ. This is the purity that is the flow out of the great promise. This what great promise being Jesus is coming again. Will you be diligent? I pray that we will spend our time in the pursuit of purity for the glory of God. Let us pray. Father God, we give you thanks and praise for the opportunity to consider all the ramifications of this one verse, that it speaks to us so wondrously of what you've called us to be. Lord, not simply saved and redeemed as incredibly wonderful as that is, but to be the beloved by God who are found doing the will of God and the work of God until the return of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would give us a diligence towards that. And today we've spoken on just one aspect of it, that we would be a people who pursue purity in life. Father, forgive us where we have failed in those areas, but never, we pray, allow us to use our failings to not seek to be diligent, that we would not say there's no hope because our hope is not built upon what we can do for ourselves, but what Christ has supplied to us, his righteousness, his spotlessness, spotlessness, his blamelessness. So, Father God, I pray that we be a people who pursue the righteousness, the holiness, and the purity of Christ to your glory. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.